0: Uh, good morning, my name is Daph, and uh, it's my privilege to spend some time looking at those verses in the Bible, from the Bible with you. As we need God's help to understand by the power of his Spirit, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the speaking God, and you speak to us truth, a truth about the Lord Jesus, but uh, as well, truth, maybe more uncomfortably, about ourselves, and about the world that we live in. Uh, Please, today, give us eyes to see truth, minds to understand truth, and hearts to accept truth. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I I went to the doctor recently. Um, I had a couple of sort of faint periods when I was running, so I went and I thought, see, the doctor seemed a sensible thing to do. Lovely, smiling young woman sat me down, and uh, she took my pulse and took my blood pressure, and she said... I'd like you to go to Kingston Hospital to have an ECG, a little, a little monitor run on your heart. I said, oh, when would you like me to go? She said, now. Oh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll just get in the car and drive. She said, no, 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 you won't. I said, well, I'll get on the bus then. I'll take the bus. No, no, you won't do that either. So you'd like me to get someone to drive me there? She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, if while you're driving there, you begin to get chest pains please, could you uh, ring an ambulance and stop the vehicle and get the ambulance to come to you straight away because they have monitors and equipment in the ambulance. They'll be able to resuscitate you immediately. (laughs) Great. So I went. And don't worry, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. Nothing showed up. But uh, sometimes we we need a bit of a warning, don't we? We need a shock. We need a wake-up call. Um, And I I don't know about you, but when you go to the doctor, the doctor you want to see is not the one who goes, there, there, there. No, no, you're lovely. Everything's okay. You want to see the doctor who genuinely wants to find out if there's anything wrong with you, and who will give you an honest diagnosis. They're scary words, aren't they? I'd like you to go for an MRI scan. But you'd rather the doctor put you through the scanner than ignore any problems you have. Well, Romans 1, 18-32 is God's MRI scan of a world that rejects him. It's his view on a culture and a society that says there is no God. And actually, unless we understand God's diagnosis with our world, we won't make any sense of, well, the book of Romans, the idea that there is a need for a person called Jesus Christ to come, the Son of God, to to restore our relationship with God. We won't understand why Christ had to die and rise again. And I think as Christians, unless we understand God's diagnosis, we won't really be able to make sense of living in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. You you see, Romans 1, 18 to 32 is not going to be comfortable reading. The question I want to ask you is it accurate maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian you might disagree with the moral statements made within these verses but but I want to ask you do you think they're going to be an accurate description of the world we live in a world that rejects God Now, just to put you in the picture where we are, we're reading this uh, letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome, around AD 57, and last week he opened with really the crescendo, the the strap line of the letter. It was this, that a right relationship with God is being given freely to anyone who comes with open-handed faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is given to them. And what Paul does now is he says, look, this is why you need that righteousness. This is why you need saving. This is why you need to trust Jesus. Uh, Here's the first heading. We need to trust Jesus because God is angry with people. Look down at Romans 1 verse 18. It actually starts with the word for. It's missed in our translation for some reason. For, here's the reason. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven... "...against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness." Now, God's wrath is his righteous anger against all that is evil. Now, now God's anger isn't like your and my anger. We tend to lose our temper, fly off the handle, get stroppy, largely because we don't get our own way. But that's not God. God's anger is his settled hostility against all that is evil... It's not separate from his love. No, it's an outworking of his love. God loves his world so much that he is not content just to leave it with wrongdoing and pain and suffering and hurt. He looks at those things and it makes him angry. It's like if you're a parent and you hear about one of your kids being bullied at school. Well, you begin to feel angry. You want to sort it out. You get on the phone to the teacher. You don't want someone precious to you to suffer. You see, the opposite to love isn't anger. No, the opposite to love is indifference. It's just not caring. And God cares very much about the world that he has made. And he is passionate about restoring it to a good and pure and perfect place. And he is angry about what it has become. Present, active, now angry. Angry against godlessness, the verse tells us. That's the way he's rejected and belittled and ignored. And against wickedness or literally unrighteousness. That's the way we treat each other, wrongly and cruelly and unkindly. And Paul says, look, the wrath of God is being revealed. The world around you speaks to you of a God who is rightfully angry with creation. There's lots of goodness in our world, lots that we can still celebrate. But but actually, if we look out at the world, it it should speak to us. There's something broken in our relationship with God. the, The natural world isn't on our side all the time, is it? Whether it be flooding or earthquakes or hurricanes and then the, the relational world, the broken relationships between people. And finally, our relationship with the physical world, sickness and death. There's clearly something wrong with the world we live in. I had to take the uh, car to uh, the garage recently. <laughs> Me to the doctor, the car to the garage, everything's falling apart in our life. The, uh, there was a, a noise, the brakes were making a noise, and the noise was so loud that actually... As I drove down the road, people on the pavement were sort of going. Now, when, when the engine makes a crunching noise, you know, or, or the brakes don't work, you, you realize the car's broken. You don't, you don't say, hey, look at the, the shiny paintwork. The radio still works. Can you see the way the seats recline? My car's fine. No, no, you go, there's something seriously wrong with the car. It doesn't work. And a lot of the time, we look at the world around us and we go, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? And we ignore that actually a lot of it doesn't work. Some of the things that matter the most don't appear to work very well Our relationships with one another. And Paul says, did you know why that is? The wrath of God is being actively revealed against who? Against people who suppress the truth by their wickedness or literally who hold down the truth in unrighteousness we're so keen on doing what we want uh, that we will ignore God to the extent we hold down truth about him Um, it's a bit like you know if you've ever had a a football or a beach ball in the swimming pool in the sea you try to hold it down You you ever play that game as a kid when you put it between your legs and then try to let go and think, as soon as the pressure comes off, it flies out of the water, doesn't it? Like a torpedo upwards. Well, it's, it's that sort of level. We are suppressing the truth about God because we want to do what we want. That, that's what we're doing. We, we hold it down. We reject God. Whether we do that instinctively, without thinking about it, or consciously, Deliberately. Whether we've done that all our life, it sort of immediately happened to us, or whether there's come a point in our life when we've thought, no, I think this is all rubbish. A friend was telling me yesterday that his 17-year-old daughter, at the age of 17, on her 17th birthday, said, "Mum and Dad, what you believe is, and I'm not going to use the word she used, rubbish. Whether we've done it consciously or unconsciously, we suppress the truth about God, and God is angry as a result see God is angry with people firstly here's the second thing people without excuse you see we suppress the truth look at verse 20 19 rather verse 19 since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them we can know God it's not that God's hiding himself from us we've been looking in Our evening sermons in Genesis, right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, at the extraordinary nature of the creation God made. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. If we look out at the world around us, we see a world that declares the glory of the Lord, God's abundant generosity in creation, God's extraordinary creative beauty. I was thinking about this this week. I mean, take, for for example, a bird that you see all the way around Chessington. I I can't get them in my garden. Very jealous. Some people can get the goldfinch. You ever thought about the goldfinch? But perhaps you haven't. I'm getting to that age when I think about things like the goldfinch. Yeah? Have you ever thought, why does the goldfinch need to be so colorful? I mean, why, why make the goldfinch like that? All it's got to do is eat peanuts and attract a female goldfinch. That is one pimped up bird. I mean, it doesn't need to have all that color, does it? And it's just one among thousands upon thousands upon thousands of beautiful creatures that seem unnecessarily decorated because we have a God of unimaginable beauty and creativity. You're telling me that happened accidentally because that goldfinch was more attracted to the other lady goldfinches, the one with the red head, and all the others died out? No, no, it's creative beauty. It speaks of our God, the intricate design of our world, everything in harmony. You'll know, don't you, that, that if, if our, the Earth was just at a slightly different tilt, or if we, we orbited round the Sun in a slightly different way, we'd just all fry, or if the Moon was just a little bit closer, we'd all drown. Everything speaking of intricate design. And then look at, look at yourselves in the mirror. It's not always attractive, but hang in there. You're, you're, you're a beautiful creation made in the image of a creator. Think, think of the extraordinary way that human beings are capable of thought, of invention, of, yes, relationship, of love. We make a mess of it, but we are extraordinary. See, God's not been hiding He's never tried to make it hard for us to see what an amazing creator we have. The evidence is all around us, but we suppress the truth. So, so we have no excuse. Anyone who's ever lived has no excuse for not thinking there is an extraordinary creator who I should worship with all of my life. But that's not what we do. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See, we fail to acknowledge God. We take him for granted. That's what we do. Don't glorify him, give thanks to him. And then we do the ultimately stupid swap. We swap The incorruptible, immortal God who who makes everything, the creator, for mortal, corruptible creatures. In fact, the language in verses 21 and 22 and 23 is, is actually laden with words from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Although they claim to be wise, that's what Adam and Eve thought they'd become by eating the fruit on the tree. Although they came to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles or snakes. See, right from the beginning of the Bible, humankind made a decision to listen to a reptile and to, make, to eat some fruit that they thought would make them wise. And the result is ever since then, we worship creation rather than the creator almost every world religion has has images that they worship and it's 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 extraordinarily sad whether it's buddhism or hinduism though the buddha himself would never claim to be a god so i've been to southeast asia and you literally go to these these buddhist temples and there are people there enslaved superstitiously going day after day, taking food, day after day, worshipping an image. It happens in all sorts of forms of Christianity, false forms of Christianity. People touching statues, offering to statues, praying to statues, and I guess we might as sort of good evangelicals here at Chessington Evangelical Church go, "Oh, that is awful, I mean, I'd never do anything like that, how ridiculous is idolatry, that is stupid. But if I stuck on the pedestal body image, or career status, or feeling a success, or financial security, suddenly worshipping that which is created rather than the creator seems a little closer to the home. No, we've done a ridiculous swap. We reject the truth of the living God and worship things that are no gods at all. And that's offensive. You see, we're a bit, I guess, like a child who lives in the house with their parents, never, ever acknowledging that they're there. So they grew up, and every single day, it's not just they don't say thank you or please. No, we all struggle with that. It's they blank their parents for the entirety of life. They sit down, they enjoy the meals. <laughs> how amazing! Breakfast spontaneously produces itself again. Oh, look, all my clothes are washed. I don't know how that happened. That they go through life. Every single day. Actively ignoring and rejecting the ones providing for them. And in the end... The parent has a right to be angry with that. It's a terrible way to treat someone. And that's what we, we do to God. It's offensive. It's wrong. It's personally hurtful to him. In our church, we have in our values that we are broken people. And that is true. Here in Romans 1, God is saying, look, the world is broken. But actually more seriously and at and a greater greater uh, a problem for us, it's not that we're broken people, we are guilty people. We are offensive people. We are those who aren't just part of a world that is broken, that sort of suggests, oh no, I don't function properly, but it wasn't really my fault. No, by nature, we are part of a world that actively rejects the God who made us and day by day chooses to flout his love and goodness to live our own way, pressing down what we know to be true so that we can decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We are guilty people and offensive to God. God is angry. And we've got no excuse. No excuse at all. And the result is, God gives us what we want. God gives us what we want. Have a look down, because here's here's God's response. In, In verse 24, that starts with the word, therefore. It's a reason word, therefore. This is what God gives us. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. That phrase comes again in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over. And then verse 28, God, so God gave them over. In the middle of the verse there. And the message of these three little sections is quite simple. God gives us over to what we want. He gives us over, first of all, to our heart's desires. Uh, look at verse 24 with me. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God gives us over literally to the passions of our hearts for uncleanness to our desire to do the very things that make us dirty unacceptable to God look at verse 25 they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised amen it's another disastrous swap we've got the truth about God that relationship is found with a loving Heavenly Father and and that is freedom that is security and and we swap it for a lie the lie that freedom is found in doing what we want doing what our hearts desire and worshipping the world around us and of course that lie is is utterly what is behind the, the morality of our world today certainly of our Western culture That's absolutely what's driving thought, isn't it? The best thing for you is to get what you want. In fact, more than that, the best thing for you is to be who you want and get who you want. that's, That's absolutely the best thing for you. That is freedom. In fact, it is unhealthy for you psychologically and emotionally not to be who you want and do what you want. No one's got the right to tell you who you are or what you can do. You choose. And it sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, people who, who tell you that you, you shouldn't behave in the way you feel, they're oppressive and evil. But, but people who tell you, "No, you do what you want. You be who you want. They're kind and that they're looking after you. And it's a lie. It's a lie that leaves people in desperate insecurity. It leaves people craving love. It leaves people longing for meaningful relationship. But it's a lie we worship, that we give our lives to. And Paul says, look, that lie is often expressed, verse 24, in in sexual impurity, in sexual desires. So often I think people, and Christians probably more than those who aren't yet Christians, think, oh, the Bible just goes on about sex so much. That's because God is a realist. Have Have you watched the news television recently or looked at what's advertising anything in your magazines? You know, from your soap to your toothpaste to your shower unit to your motor car... The advertisers know what turns you on. The advertisers know that your sexual desires are one of the most powerful urges within you. And God knows it as well. And so he says, when, when you get what you want, often that's shown in wrong sexual desire. No, no, we, we live in a world that says, look, you getting your heart's desire is best for you. And God says, no, I've given you over to that. Because you refuse to acknowledge me. And the result is that you worship the world around you. And you indulge the desires of your hearts. And you think freedom is doing what you want all the time. And not listening to me. We think we're so in control. We're so free. But we're not. And God gives us over secondly to shameful lusts. Look at verse 26. Twenty-seven. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even though women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, firstly, I need to say that shameful lusts in the Bible includes all sexual sin. And in the Bible's terms, sexual sin is anything that you do sexually outside of a lifelong relationship called marriage between a man and a woman. It's quite simple. If you're married to someone of the opposite sex, a man or a woman, then that's the place to have sexual conduct. If you're not, no sexual conduct. The Bible's quite clear on that. But but why is it that Paul here talks about same-sex relationships? It's not that same-sex relationships are any worse before God than heterosexual sexual sin. But, but do you see the repeated word he uses here? He, he gave from natural for unnatural. In verse 27, abandoned natural relationship relations for unnatural relations. I think the reason that Paul Paul is using... This type of sexual relationship is he's looking back at God's creation in Genesis 2, where God takes man and woman and he, he gives them to one another and they are knitted together emotionally and physically. And he says, Look, if you want an example in the world that we've rejected God's order in creation, well, the example is this. You take a man and a what man and and they are trying to come together physically and they can't. According to most biology textbooks, what would traditionally be regarded as sex is impossible for a man and a man because they do not have the right sexual organs to couple together according to the way they are designed. And the same between a woman and a woman. Our culture has redefined what sex is. Sex... In terms of biology, historically, has been something that happens between male and female. And Paul is saying look, our world, the world out there now, s- celebrates uh, something that is clearly unnatural. Now, you, you might be struggling with that as a concept. You, you and I have grown up in, cultures that would, in a culture that says what I've just said is totally outrageous. And in no way am I condemning anyone who has uh, same-sex attraction uh, uh, as being any more guilty before God than any other human being who struggles in rebellion against God in a whole variety of different ways. But even if you think what I'm saying is offensive, let me ask you, is it an accurate description of our world? That that is an accurate description of our world, isn't it? We live in a world where men and men come together in a relationship called sex and it's celebrated. And women and women come together in a relationship called sex and it's celebrated. That's the world we're living in. That's the world Paul is describing here. And he says that's the world we have because God's given us over to it because we've chosen to reject him. The, uh, the Miseducation of uh, Cameron Post has just come out. It's a film, uh, won a number of awards. It was released at the beginning of September. And uh, in it, a girl is sent to undergo gay conversion therapy at a, a Christian counseling center. Now, it's not a neutral film. And whatever you think of gay conversion therapy, whatever you think about Christian counseling, the message in the film is, is very clear that people being denied the right to express the way they feel naturally is wrong anyone should be able to choose who and how they express themselves sexually and even to use terms like same-sex attraction suggests you're intolerant you're unkind and you're cruel to young people And that's the culture we live in. I'm not even going to tell you whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying, is this an accurate description of the world we live in? And God says, I've given you over to shameful lusts. So the unnatural is championed as natural. And lastly, he says, i give you over to a depraved mind. Verse 24. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Paul's actually using here the language of a a blacksmith, someone who works with metal. And uh, if you're working with metal, you you test the piece of metal you're working with to see if it was was strong and would hold up. You'd prove the metal. And Paul is saying, no, I don't... uh, Because uh, we don't want to prove, to test the knowledge of God, I've given them over to a disproved mind. In other words, because we're not interested in thinking about whether God is true and whether we can know him, God gives us minds that are incapable of telling truth from lie, right from long. I actually think there's, a, there's an escalation happening in Romans 1. First, we, we just get what we want, our desires, the desires of our hearts. Then we're given over to ways that should be self-apparently working against the natural created order. We're given over to those shameful lusts. And finally, because we're so uninterested in knowing the truth about God, God gives us over to minds that actually are incapable of testing what right and wrong is or truth and lie. That idea in verse 28 of doing things that ought not to be done is the idea of behaving in ways that don't fit together. So God gives us over to forms of life that mean that, well, our society doesn't function happily. Ways of conduct and behavior that means that we live in a, a fractured and a, a broken world. I mean, he lists them in, in verse 29 to 30. And the thing that's shocking about this list in verse 29 to 30 is the way that it mixes things that we're sure we wouldn't do with things that we don't give a second thought about. Have a look at the list with me. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, god-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. You see that? Evil's next to murder. Greed with depravity. Slander, speaking unkindly about someone, with hating God. Arrogance together with strife. Doing evil beside disobeying your parents. You see, it's no one, none of us, can we? None of us this morning can look at this list and claim innocence. It's a catalogue that condemns us all. It's not just we're part of a culture around us that has rejected God. No, in our hearts, we behave to show that, that we are those who reject God. I mean, you might feel verse 31 is a bit harsh. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. But without God daily, we prove that we're incapable of running a world of faithfulness and of love and affection, of mercy. And if I'm honest, even with God in my life, I still can't be the understanding, faithful, affectionate, merciful man that I want to be day by day. You see, we're without excuse. The problem is not the culture out there, the problem is not our government, the problem is not our circumstances, the problem is not our family background, the problem is not our education. The problem is not anything else other than our hearts, our foolish, darkened hearts. Look look at the conclusion on humanity in verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, back from Genesis 3, people thought they knew best. God warned them that if you choose what right and wrong is for yourself, the punishment is death. And that's the final punishment that awaits all people. Not physical death, the dreadful spiritual death of facing God's final anger. But but even though humanity knew that, we've ignored his command. We believe that we know best, that the human mind is the final authority in the universe, that we can trust ourselves above anyone else. So if enough people think something is right, it must be right. And the result is we live in a society that condones our desires, that commends our desire to disobey God. And they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So here's my question. Do you accept God's verdict on the world we live in or not? Do you accept that actually God has every right to be angry with us, to be angry with you? Because we reject the truth about him. Because we worship created things, not the creator but because we live for things that ought not to be done. I think there are three dangers in the way you might respond to this. Here are three dangers as we finish. The first thing is you might say, well, this is, this is irrelevant. God's verdict is irrelevant. I mean, all this is so culturally out of date and, and Paul is a misogynist and he's clearly homophobic and this is an ancient book. We're much more enlightened now. We've moved on. Well if that's you this morning, can I encourage you just to pay a little bit more attention to the world this week? Just to read the news a little bit more carefully. Uh, To go to those news stories that you don't usually go, the ones you avoid because you think they're going to be too distressing or too sad or too upsetting. And as you look at our world to ask yourself, is this a world that works? Is it a world that fits the description of romans 1 18 to 32 it might be this morning you think oh yeah this is a a great verdict by god for other people so you've been thinking yeah that's so true the world is a terrible place full of evil people they behave in disgraceful ways thank goodness i follow jesus i'm a christian And and with each of the things I've talked about, you felt just a a little bit better about yourself or a little bit more disgusted with the world. Well, have a look at the beginning of next week's passage. Look at Romans 2 verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. See, I've got... One challenge for you, if you feel that this isn't an issue that you have, but but people out there have, just go away this week and uh, live a life where you keep your own standards. Just just live a life this week, not doing anything that you're ashamed of. And if you pull it off, come back and, and tell me next week and we'll talk about the sin of pride. Here's the last danger. You might be thinking, "I'm the problem, and I've got to be the solution." You're thinking, "I'm dreadfully sinful. I'm yeah, I'm envious. I'm I'm angry. I've I've sinned sexually. I worship idols. I've, I've got to really sort my life out." But but that's not what God wants you to do with these verses. I mean, Danny reminded us these verses come in the context of Romans 1, 16 and seventeen. You see, these verses are the reason, yes, that we deserve God's righteous anger, but the reason that we need to see that is so that we see that God has offered us his righteousness in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is nothing that we can do to deal with the anger we deserve, but he has done everything. So Look back to Romans 1.16. You see, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But the power to save is not found in yourself. It's a gift of God. The righteousness that you need to stand before God innocent is not something you can produce in yourself. It is a gift of God. It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes to those who will come to him saying, I've got nothing to bring. My hands are empty. I'm part of a world that rejects you. I am guilty. Please, Forgive me through for your death at the cross. Here's some words from that great old hymn, Rock of Ages. We're going to sing it in a moment. Listen to how a top lady puts it in his hymn. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Romans 1, 18 to 32 says that we have a naked, helpless, foul world that we are people who are by nature naked, helpless, and foul. But we have a Savior. That's the great news of Romans. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. Danny.